On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. You'll follow along as I begin now. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Well, may the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, we're still continuing to work our way through the final section of Ephesians, looking at Paul's practical instruction about walking worthy of our calling or living out the Christian life. And he's given us examples of what our conduct as Christians should and should not be. He's given us sinful and unchristlike attitudes that are to be put away, Christ-like attitudes that we're to cultivate, we're to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving as God and Christ forgave us. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said that we are continually and increasingly to become imitators of God because we're his beloved children. Of course, this means then that we're to be imitators of Christ. And therefore, Paul said in verse 2, we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And you'll remember we said that to walk in love as Christ walked in love and gave himself up for us is to live lives of unconditional, self-giving, sacrificial love that manifests itself in laying down our lives for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, we're to do good to all men, but especially those who are of the household of faith. And this kind of love is to be the distinguishing mark of our lives, and it, and it should govern all that we say and all that we do. And then last week, beginning in verse 3 through verse 14, Paul, continuing to emphasize the fact that Christians must not live as pagans do, turned to address the issue of moral or sexual purity. And so he turned from the unconditional, self-giving, self-sacrificial love spoken of in verses 1 and 2 to its very opposite, self-centered, self-indulgence. You know, he's turned from genuine love to the perversion of it called lust. The self-centered, immoral conduct and speech in verses 3 and 4 are the very opposite of the beautiful Christ-like, self-sacrificing love spoken of in verses 1 and 2. And Paul's message for us is very direct. It's pointless for us to claim to be Christians 
and to hope for salvation if our sexual attitudes and behavior is no different from that of the debauched, lustful society around us. And he begins in verses 3 and 4 with two lists of sins we must avoid, and then in verses 5 to 7, Paul gives two reasons to avoid these sins in the form of a couple of severe warnings. Last week, we looked at verse 3, where Paul writes, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So in stark contrast to the Christ-like, unselfish, sacrificial love which Christ calls us to, is the selfish, self-indulgent, lustful love of the world which inevitably leads to immorality and impurity. And the first sin on Paul's list that we looked at last week is sexual immorality. And you'll remember that this word uh, refers to any form of illicit sexual behavior. You know, every kind of immoral sexual relation. It would include adultery, premarital sexual activity, homosexuality, lesbianism, incest, prostitution, pedophilia, bestiality, and and all, all illicit sexual behavior are included in this word immorality. So any kind of sexual behavior outside the marriage relationship between one man and one woman falls into the category of sexual immorality. And Paul lists this sin first because it is so harmful and devastating to the individual and to society. And also because it displays more graphically the the selfishness, self-centeredness, and rebellion against God's norm that mark other sins as well. And these sins and, and all other such sins are, are not of God. They're, they're not of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit never leads anyone into any kind of unholy sexual behavior which the Word of God condemns. I mean, sex is to be enjoyed be- between one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. And any uh, sexual activity that doesn't fit that definition is not to be a part of the believer's life. And the next was impurity. And this is a more general term than sexual immorality in that it refers to anything that is unclean and filthy. It is any kind of sexual sin. It's being morally impure. I mean, this is moral impurity in in all forms. It's it's marked by a sensual heart and a filthy mind. It, It refers to immoral thoughts and passions, ideas, fantasies, and just every other form of sexual corruption. Caused by the lust of the heart, it leads to sexual sin and the dishonoring of bodies. And any type of sexual impurity is not to be indulged in by believers. It has no place in our lives at all. And then third on the list is covetousness. Covetousness is last because it's the evil root from which all the previous sins flow. And it's mentioned last in the Ten Commandments. I mean, covetousness can also be translated Greed, it means to have more. It's, it's the insatiable desire to gain, gain more, especially of things that are forbidden. So it's that, it's that desire or the lust for more uh, so that a person can fulfill themselves without regard for God and for others. And in this context, covetousness speaks of a sexual desire for that which you have no right whatsoever. And all sexual immorality has greed as its motive because it's based on the selfish, self-centered lust for personal gratification, not on love and commitment to the other person's good. And so whether you're a married adult, a single adult, or a teenager, there is no sexual immorality or impurity that does not begin with the inward desire of covetousness, a desire for what you don't have. 
And how pure are, are Christians expected to be? Well, Paul answered that uh, at the end of verse 3. He says that these sins, sexual immorality, impurity, and lustful covetousness, I mean, all those things that characterize the old life, the old self, he says they must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Or as the NIV says, uh, uh, there must not even be a hint of these things among Christians. This is the biblical standard of our calling to sexual purity. And it's not proper in any way, shape, or form for these sins to be practiced among God's people. And now this morning as we come to verse 4, Paul continues his warning by mentioning a list of related sins that, that really it's, is uh, sure to cover, cover every believer at one time or another. I mean, not only should we as Christians never engage in sexual sins of any kind, Paul wants believers also to eliminate any kind of indecent behavior from our lives in every form of, of filthy talk because these sins are inconsistent with our new identity in Christ. The, these things cannot go together. So first on the list, Paul says in verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness. Let there be no and once again, we see that Paul does not want there to be any evidence of these kinds of attitudes and behaviors in the life of the believer and within the church. And this word filthiness means obscene behavior. But it has a long history of being translated filthiness as it is here in the ESV. It refers to any indecency, obscenity, or, or shameful thing. It means to act in defiance of social and moral standards with resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. It, it, it speaks of acting shamefully. It speaks of sordid, indecent behavior, shameful deeds. I mean, anything that defiles in such a way as to be disgusting or revolting. And this is the way most of the older commentators rightly understood it whereas some of the more recent commentators have seen this term as a shortened equivalent of, of filthy talk. But the fact that Paul uses a form of the word that does not include a reference to speech may indicate that he doesn't want to limit it uh, to the way people talk. And the specific kinds of behaviors that, that Paul has in mind are, are difficult to know, but, but it refers again to any shameful, indecent, obscene behavior and or speech. And it certainly would include sexually suggestive speech, sexually provocative dress and seductive conduct, lewd gestures, inappropriate touching, uh, disgusting kinds of practical jokes, and, and a wide variety of other behaviors. Again, it's any indecent, shameful, obscene, sordid behavior and speech. And one thing is for sure. Filthy conduct and filthy speech means a filthy heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. The next two terms really narrow the focus to evil and, and sinful speech. The next one Paul lists is foolish talk. He says, nor foolish talk. And this Greek word is really easy to remember because it's made up of two words. Moron and logos, which means word. <laughs> And it means one who talks like a fool. And the concern here is not with intelligence. The concern here is with morals. 
Because in the Bible, the fool is not someone who is mentally deficient, but rather someone who is morally deficient because they ignore God's word. And in this context, Paul is referring to speech that disregards or makes light of God's moral commandments. You know, talk of sexual immorality and debauchery. It would refer to the person who makes light of God's moral standards. As one man said, thinking that it is somehow funny or sophisticated to tear down anything that is high or praiseworthy or ennobling. And of course, this is what television does. I mean, television sitcoms pretend to be funny. But it's just a way for them to express their hatred for biblical morals and values and and to demean anyone who believes and practices them. I mean, this is what goes on in in classrooms and lecture halls across the country as liberal and and left-leaning teachers and professors express their hatred for anything biblical, especially biblical morals. And then they ridicule and demean anyone who holds to them, while at the same time they promote sexual immorality and every sort of perversion. And this would also include the foolish talk that, that comes from people at social gatherings where drunkenness and sexual immorality are common. And then the third one is, nor crude joking. Nor crude joking. The last of these terms is closely related to obscene behavior and speech and foolish talk, but with the emphasis on coarse or vulgar humor. And the word translated here as as crude joking literally means to turn easily. To turn easily. And it has the idea of someone who can make a, a quick comeback, you know, using, using clever words with, with double meanings and sexual innuendos. It carries the idea of quickly turning something that is said or done, no matter how innocent, into something obscene, lewd, suggestive, or sexually vulgar. And this type of foul humor is common for a late-night TV show host, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're paid to turn news events and articles and, and statements, no matter how innocent, into something crude and, and perverse. And this is also often the type of humor so often used around the, the water cooler in, in the workplace by male and female co-workers. I mean, it's a dirty mind expressing itself in sexually vulgar conversation coming from a heart given over to moral filthiness. It's sensual talk and, and gutter humor which are not beneficial at all. In fact, they just tear people down. Now, we shouldn't think that Paul is condemning all humor. He certainly is not. I mean, not at all. Because a good laugh is often medicine for the soul, and so there's absolutely nothing wrong with with clean humor and with having a good laugh. But jokes about sexual immorality are not fitting for believers. Why? You know, what's wrong with, with humor that deals with immorality? Well, first of all, it doesn't take sin seriously enough. And that is a deadly error. Secondly, it enables people to talk about things that, that they wouldn't dare discuss seriously. I mean, humor allows people to push the envelope of, of what is appropriate further than, uh, than they could seriously. And then, then if they go too far, they just simply say, oh, well, I was just kidding. And not only that, talking and joking about sexual sin creates an atmosphere 
in which they're tolerated, and which can even promote their practice. I mean, you, you laugh and joke uh, long enough at these things, your moral perception will begin to be blurred, and ultimately, your moral conduct may be subverted. I mean, joking about immorality, especially with members of the opposite sex, often is the first step people take toward immorality. And I wonder how many people fell into immorality after joking and talking about it. And there's another reason why we must not joke about what is immoral. There are just some things that Christians should never make jokes about because they are either too sacred or too filthy. I mean, Christians shouldn't joke about sex for the same reason that we shouldn't joke about God. It's a sacred subject. And from the text, it seems as though this is Paul's primary reason for forbidding it. Because joking about sex demeans it. But you see, I mean, sex is a gracious and and precious gift from God who's the source of every good and perfect gift. And so we should should never dare to to make light of God's good gifts. Because in doing so, we, we make a mockery of them. I mean, the sexual relationship should be reverenced among believers, not degraded or, or made light of. And joking about sex really demeans this sacred and, and precious gift from God. And so Paul says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. I mean, all these things must be avoided because they're improper. They're totally out of place in the lives of believers because they're not worthy of the calling with which we've been called. They, they are utterly inappropriate for believers, uh, those that, you know, that God has set apart as holy. Instead, Paul says, look back at the verse, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. Instead of demeaning or belittling God's gracious gifts, Paul tells us that we're to give thanks. Now let me ask you something. Would you have chosen thanksgiving or gratitude as the opposite of all these sexual and verbal sins? Is that what you would have chosen? I wouldn't have. So why did Paul do this? Why thanksgiving? Because Paul is here pointing to the reason that we've been sexually immoral, impure people, the reason we've been covetous, the reason for our filthy behavior, the reason for our dirty talk, is that we're not thankful. Sexual immorality and all impurity begins within our hearts because we covet something we don't have. Covetousness is a deep, discontented craving that dominates your life and leads you to go against the will of God. You know, we're not content with the the provision of the Lord, therefore we lust, we covet, which leads to these sins and, and many more. And so Paul is telling us here to put off our discontentment and to be thankful for where God has us and for what God has given us. Because if you're overflowing with with thanksgiving to God, then you're not going to be dominated and driven by discontentment at what you've been denied. You see, gratitude is what you feel when you believe God is for you and not against you. 
Gratitude is what you feel when you believe that God gives you only what is good for you and and withholds no good thing, whether you're single or married. And so you can see how thanksgiving is the opposite of a life driven by lustful cravings for what you don't have, whether it's sex or money or whatever it may be. Thanksgiving says, in Christ, I have all I need. In Christ, I have all that is good for me, and I will not be driven to dishonor and disgrace his holy name just to get a few sexual sensations. As Christians, we should be characterized by thanksgiving, which is the appropriate response to all of God's good gifts, including his gift of sex. One commentator writes, Thanksgiving reflects a Christian's attitude to sex that is antithetical to a pagan attitude with its immorality and vulgarity. When Christians are thankful for our forgiveness through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, then our hearts respond with a desire to please God and to lead a holy lifestyle that glorifies his name. And so you see, loved ones, when sex is received with thanksgiving within the sanctity of the marriage relationship, I mean, it is one of God's most precious gifts to his people. And this this is why the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, that means let it be uncontaminated. Let it be set apart. The marriage bed is to be kept pure or undefiled. In other words, the sexual intimacy shared between a husband and wife is to be reserved for that couple alone. Anything else is to defile it. Again, God created the sexual union to be between a husband and a wife, period, only. No other use of sexuality is ever condoned in Scripture. And so to abuse or misuse God's precious gift of sex is to defile the marriage bed. A man by the name of Mike Mason in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, reminds us of the preciousness of of God's gift of sex, which we must guard and cherish. He writes, What can equal the surprise of finding out that the one thing above all others which mankind has been most enterprising and proficient in dragging through the dirt turns out, in fact, to be the most innocent thing in the world? Is there any other activity at all which an adult man and woman within the confines of marriage may engage in together apart from worship that is actually more childlike, more clean and more pure, more natural and wholesome and unequivocally right than is the act of making love. For if worship is the deepest available form of communion with God, then surely sex is the deepest communion that is possible between human beings, and as such is something absolutely essential in more than a biological way to our survival. When we consider the, the good gift of sex to all mankind, we should be nothing but thankful. We should be nothing but thankful to God, our Creator, because we are here because of this gift. Right? I mean, all of God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving rather than for joking. And when we're grateful to God, we use His good gifts in a a reverent and a responsible way. 
And so we must develop a thankful heart for all of God's blessings, including sexual relationship in marriage, and we need to honor it and reverence it and treat it as something special that it is. Because as the writer of Hebrews said, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And with that in mind, having called us to sexual purity, Paul now adds two severe warnings to remind us just how serious this matter is and to motivate Christians to take these words seriously. And these warnings spell out the dire consequences for those who are immoral or or sexually covetous. The first, verse 5, speaks of certainty, of of exclusion from the kingdom of Christ and of God. The second, verse 6, of the experience of the wrath of God. And you know, it is is easy to become so desensitized to, to the pandemic of sexual immorality in our society. I mean, it's just all around us. And it's easy to become so numb to all of this that Paul's very firm, very straightforward warnings here in verses 5 and 6 come as a shock to some. I mean, so just how seriously does God take immorality? I mean, does he wink at this kind of sin? Well, listen to Paul's words. Let's listen to Paul's words to hear how deadly and destructive sexual immorality is. Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this. In other words, be sure you understand this. Paul saying, be sure that you understand this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Pretty straightforward. Very clear. No inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You know, in Ephesians 1.11, Paul said, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. In chapter 1, verse 14, he said that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he said that it is a glorious inheritance. And that's what's in store for us as believers. But here Paul says that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And the kingdom of Christ, according to one commentator, uh, the kingdom of Christ and of God refers to the sphere of salvation, the the community of the redeemed and and the place of eternal glory. The, The kingdom is the rule of Christ and God, which includes the present church, the future millennium, and the eternal state in glory. And when Paul says that the sexually immoral or impure or those who are covetous have no inheritance in the kingdom, that is precisely what he means. That is precisely what he means. He is not saying, he is not saying these are people who, though they are in the kingdom, will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. The subject here is not rewards, it is salvation. People whose lives are characterized by these sins are lost. They are in their sins, and they are on their way to an eternal hell. They are not in the 
They are not in the invisible kingdom at the present time. They will not be in the kingdom when Christ returns to reign. And they will, not be, and they will be forever shut out of the everlasting kingdom in heaven. They may profess to be Christians, but they prove by their lives that they were never saved. They can be saved, of course, by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if they are genuinely converted, their constant or their consistent life pattern will not be one of habitual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And having said that, it's, it's necessary to also say that we know from the whole teaching of the New Testament that all our sins, and this includes all our sexual sins, so all our sins, we know that they are they are all forgiven when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, born again, and put our faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. It's not even a question. I mean, Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so Paul is not saying that if we have ever in our lives committed a sexual sin, that that puts us in an unredeemable situation. Because if that were the case, then there would be practically no one in heaven with Jesus, right? Instead, Paul's point is that habitual, unrepented sexual sin is so incompatible with Christianity that it is impossible that a man or woman who willingly, habitually, and persistently continues in such sin possesses a true and living faith in Christ. No such person can belong to Christ. That kind of life testifies, loudly testifies to an unredeemed, sinful nature, no matter what relationship to Christ the person might claim to have. I mean, do Christians fall into these sins? Well, of course they do. But true Christians will not persist in them. They will not habitually persist in these things. Because as one man said, persistence in sensuality is a graceless state. God's children have God's very nature. And the habitually sinful person proves that he or she does not have a godly nature. And so if you know someone who, who is immersed in sexual immorality, you know, the, the promiscuity and debauchery of our society, and, and we're surrounded by such people. You can be absolutely certain that they have no place in the kingdom of Christ and God in whom alone forgiveness and eternal life can be found. You say, well, that's pretty harsh. Well, isn't this what Paul just said? If this was Pastor Jim just saying this, then you could, you know, take it for what it was worth. But this is the word of the living God through the Apostle Paul. And this is exactly what God says. And it is exactly what it means. So if you know someone immersed in sexual immorality, continually, habitually, persistently, that's their lifestyle, they're not in the kingdom. And they are in need of the gospel, the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's so absolutely necessary to emphasize this. 
You say, why? Well, because of the sexual permissiveness that influences so many of us. I mean, in our society today, and, and tragically, even in the church, people tend to think that sexual sin, us, is no big deal. No big deal. One commentator I read said that he had a conversation once with a prominent conservative preacher who told him that adultery was a sin, sure, but it wasn't that big a deal. Far worse are sins like pride or malice. And certainly we wouldn't uh, argue with them and downplay those other sins. And the fact is, we all have plenty of sins to condemn us even if we are sexually pure. But we had better take very seriously the fact that when the Apostle Paul gives lists of various sins in his different letters, he usually puts sexual sins at the very top of the list. An example is Galatians 5.19, where Paul lists the sinful works of the flesh and begins with sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. You can also see 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, to our text here. And no doubt the reason is that Paul does this is that sexual sin really is very serious. God takes it very seriously. That's why under Old Testament law, adulterers would have been taken out and stoned, killed. They didn't take people out and stone them for pride or malice. But they certainly did for adultery and other sexual sins. God takes it very seriously. Why? Well, because it destroys souls. It tears apart marriages and families and, and sexual covetousness is especially bad. Paul says it's idolatry, the worship of a false god. One man wrote, idolatry, which consists in putting the creature in the place of God, is everywhere in his word denounced as the greatest of all sins in his sight. And so, let me just repeat, Paul is not declaring that anyone who has committed or who commits these sins is excluded from God's heavenly kingdom. Nevertheless, anyone who habitually, persistently gives themselves over to such sins, uh, if the basic characteristic of their life is sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness, then as long as they remain in that state, they remain out of the kingdom of God. Even if they call themselves Christians, their, their lifestyle demonstrates they're excluded from eternal life. You cannot be a practicing homosexual or a practicing lesbian and be a Christian. You cannot. You know, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul gives an even more detailed listing of sins whose habitual practice proves a person is not saved and has no claim on God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because such things do not characterize the child of God. And so the verdict of God is that no matter what a person may claim, if they live a life dominated by uh, sins like this, they have no inheritance in the kingdom. And if they die in their sin, 
They're not going to heaven. Rather, they're going to hell. I mean, that's how serious this is. John, writing in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, wrote, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, those who love and habitually practice any of these sins, you know, stubbornly clinging to it, refusing to repent of it, you know, they're, they're, they're refusing Christ's gracious invitation to salvation, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire if they die in their sin. And loved ones, I want to be very clear about this. Paul is not here threatening that, that God will abandon or destroy his children. It's not what this is. Rather, Paul is pointing to the fearful end that will come upon those whose ultimate choice is sexual immorality and idolatry, and he is using their impending doom as an object lesson to warn his children to steer clear of these sins. To steer clear of sin, period. Because I might add, if you continually, habitually, persistently uh, uh, you know, live in sin, whether it's sexual sin or not. If there is sin that you're aware of, and you continually, habitually, persistently live in that sin, refusing to obey the Word of God, you're no better off than the adulterer or the fornicator. Habitual, persistent, consistent, uh, you know, sin unrepented of, does not characterize the life of a believer. So the Lord, through Paul, is using the consequences that come upon those uh, who are immersed in these sins to, as an object lesson to warn us to steer clear of them. But even if the consequences of such sins are not ultimate for us as believers, God's discipline, because He does discipline His children, God's loving discipline for sexually immoral, idolatrous sins ought to be more than sufficient to turn us away from these sins. And so with a pastor's loving heart, Paul issues this warning in verse 5 and and now he adds a second warning in verse 6. You know, Paul not only warns about the denial of an inheritance, but also about what is inherited by those whose lives are characterized by sexual immorality, impurity, and, and lustful greed. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, all the sins in in uh, verses 3 and 4, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I mean, it's all too easy for believers to be influenced by the surrounding world and to, and to give in to its ways of thinking and behaving. And, and so the result is that what is acceptable to the culture of the day uh, becomes acceptable in the church. And this is particularly true in, in, in our contemporary Western society in the area of, of sexual morality. 
But Paul says, let no one deceive you. He doesn't identify those who were attempting to deceive. They, they may have been unbelieving Gentiles, or more likely, there were people in the church who refused to take sin seriously. Or perhaps uh, there were some false teachers who were suggesting that it didn't really matter how you lived as long as you just accepted Jesus. You just accept Jesus, add him to your life, live the way you, know, you pretty much want to live, and then get heaven in the end. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty or, or vain words. He's saying, don't listen to them. He's saying, don't, don't be misled by, by anyone, whoever they are, that encourages sexual permissiveness, saying things like, well, you know, these things are, are a matter of indifference. Or, you know, these things are, are a matter of one's own conscience. So, you know, don't let anyone judge you. You know, you just follow your heart, and if it feels right, then, then goes for it. Or then go for it. I mean, Paul knew that many, including many Christian leaders, would say, hey, you're under grace. God is a God of love who, who won't condemn you. You know, he, he understands your weakness. God made you this way and, and gave you these desires, so how can this be sinful? People like Andy Stanley. False teacher. Leading people astray. Letting people think that it's okay to live in homosexuality and be a Christian. But arguments like this are not only empty and devoid of the truth because, because they're not in line with God's word, they're damning lies. They're damning lies. People are being led astray. They're being led to think that they can live this way and be a Christian. And one day when they stand before God, if they, they die in that condition, they're going to be horrified. I mean, people like Andy Stanley and others are leading people astray. As Peter said, by such enticing words, they lure unsuspecting people to eternal ruin. Or as Paul says here, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And those whose lives are characterized by such sinful practices will experience God's wrath. And you know, in, in much of the church today, people don't, they don't even want to hear about God's wrath. But it is just as much an attribute of God as is his love. God is all of his attributes all of the time in all of their utter perfection. And wrath is one of his attributes. And those whose lives are characterized by these sinful practices, they die in their sin, will experience God's wrath. The good news is, is that as believers, we will never face God's wrath because Paul told the Thessalonians, we have been delivered from the wrath to come. And that is something to be thankful about this morning. We've been delivered from the wrath to come and sealed with the Holy Spirit and we have a sure inheritance, a glorious inheritance. And we thank Him for that. We thank Him for His grace and mercy in our lives. 
Because that is the only thing that separates any of us from the most vile sinner on the face of the earth. God's mercy and grace. I mean, there before the grace of God go you and I, and that's no joke. As believers, we'll never face God's wrath. But God's wrath is reserved, Paul says, for the sons of disobedience, which refers to those who are redeemed, even though, excuse me, those who are unredeemed, even though they may be part of the church. They're called sons of disobedience because it is their nature to disobey. That's their nature. This does not refer to, to those who commit occasional acts of disobedience but repented. Rather, this refers to men and women whose lives are characterized by disobedience. And again, it doesn't have to be just sexual sin. If your life is characterized by disobedience to the Word of God, you're among the sons of disobedience. And if you died in in that condition, you can expect to receive the wrath of God. The sons of disobedience don't submit to God's authority. Instead, they're they're going to rule their own lives. They're going to go their own way, do things their way. They're, they're, They're children of wrath and the targets of God's judgment. And you know, it seems so often that most immoral people get away with their immorality on earth. But they will not escape detection, conviction, and sentence forever. No, Paul says, because of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And this word comes means to come to pass or to arrive as in due course. It's understood as if an event were coming to or arriving at a location. And Paul may have had in mind the biblical truth that wrath always comes uh, because, these, uh, because of these things, not only in the future, but also throughout the, course, uh, the entire course of human history. And this is certainly the case in Romans chapter 1, where Paul indicates that the wrath of God is now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, divine wrath is not simply reserved for a future day of judgment, although it, it will most certainly be revealed then in all of its fury. But it is actively being revealed now as God gives men and women up to the lust of their hearts and the wicked sinful behavior that they have chosen. It's God's wrath of abandonment. But you see, people are blind and deaf to the seriousness and the destructiveness of their sexual indulgences and they think that they can commit these outrageous sins and escape any kind of punishment. But listen, God is not mocked. God is not mocked. These sins have consequences in this life. I mean, people reap in their own bodies the results of sexual immorality. That's why we're told to flee. People who commit these sins, Paul says, I mean, they commit sin against their own bodies. But in addition to the consequences in this life, unbelievers are going to experience the full force of God's holy, furious, eternal wrath. In fact, uh, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, unbelievers are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So every sin 
They're just storing up more and more and more and more wrath. You see, sexual sin is hateful to God. It is hateful to Him. And one reason, and perhaps the primary reason, is that the marriage relationship, which involves you know, uh, sexual intimacy, which is the, the, the deepest uh, intimacy humans can experience, but the marriage relationship is supposed to be so tender, so intimate, and so pure because it's, it depicts Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. And so sexual immorality just destroys that picture. Makes it, it just destroys, the, it destroys it completely. And it's hateful to God. And he responds to it with angry wrath. Just ask Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it is idolatry. And it defiles what God has made for himself. As one man said, this bodes very ill for a nation like ours that is self-consciously given over to sexual indulgence of every kind. This is another reason why Christians must be different, why we must be an example to others of sexual purity. It is not a laughing matter. According to the Bible, sexual depravity is the harbinger of doom for a people who refuse to repent. And loved ones, if that doesn't describe our nation as a whole, um, I don't know what does. You know, just since last Sunday, when talking about all the statistics and sexual immorality, and just all of that, I mean, just since last Sunday, on Tuesday, the people of the state of Ohio voted into their state constitution the right to have an abortion. I also read this week in the Epic Times that uh, the Biden administration over the last three years has spent, I don't know if it was $4.1 or $4.9 billion supporting LGBTQ causes elsewhere in the world. Those who belong to Christ are not to live and act like the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath. Unbelievers are going to experience uh, consequences for their sin in this life. I mean, there are physical effects to this type of sin, such as venereal disease, AIDS, pregnancy, their mental, nervous, emotional disorders arising from a guilt and shame. But on top of that, the unbeliever will experience God's eternal wrath. As far as unbelievers, although we've been delivered from God's wrath, we do experience His discipline. And again, God takes this issue of sexual immorality, even among His children, very seriously. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 2-6, to Paul writes, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother or another believer in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. You see, whenever a believer 
cease to satisfy his or her physical desires and to gain sexual pleasure at the expense of another believer. They have violated this command. And God considers this subject of sinfully taking advantage of another believer for sexual gratification very seriously. I mean, we should think hard about Jesus' words in Matthew 18 where he said, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the deepest sea than to cause one of these little ones speaking about believers to stumble. And not only that, according to Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 4, God will avenge the brother or sister that's been defrauded or taken advantage of in this way. So if you defraud another brother or sister by taking their husband or taking their wife, and believers, this can happen to believers, just know this, that God will avenge the brother or sister who's been defrauded. The Lord is the avenger in all these things. Because only God has the right to exact vengeance for the sins people commit. He's the one who meets out judgment, and sexual sin is one of the specific reasons that he does. Again, as the writer of Hebrews said, for the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. As one commentator noted, if a believer engages in sexual immorality, God the avenger may judge all these things by allowing one or more of several consequences to affect that believer's life. So there are consequences. You don't commit these sins, hit the reset button, and then go on as if nothing happened. There are consequences for these. And God the avenger may, not necessarily that he will, but he may judge all these things by allowing one or more of several consequences to affect that believer's life. For example, the outcome could be a severely damaged marriage accompanied by loss of family love and respect. The sin could lead to a divorce. God may chasten the person by allowing him or her to be afflicted with venereal disease or some other physical affliction. Or the sin could result in the absence of blessing, the presence of a greater than average number of trials and troubles, or even an untimely death. Sexual sin by a believer, he said, will certainly result to some degree in the loss of eternal reward. You see, God reacts against sin. And the unbeliever will experience his eternal wrath and the believer his loving discipline. But either way, those who pursue sexual sin may suffer the consequences. But for those who fall into such sins through weakness, but afterwards repent in shame and humility, there's forgiveness. But that doesn't mean there won't be consequences. And that's why we're being warned here not to participate in these sins. And so Paul warns us, warns believers to have no part in this kind of ungodly behavior because to do so is to dishonor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to destroy the lives of others. It's to ruin one's own testimony and to invite God's discipline. And so since the consequences of living in a moral life are so serious. Paul warns in verse 7, notice, therefore, do not become partners with them. 
And the term, this term partners is used only in the New Testament here and Ephesians 3, verse 6, where it's translated partakers. And it speaks of a person who partakes of the same object as another, or one who shares in a possession or a relationship. So Paul is simply saying, look, don't share in, in, in the unbeliever's immorality and impurity. You know, don't, don't join the world in its immorality. Don't, don't be partners with them in their wickedness. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15.33, don't be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Or in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, he said, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Answer, none. And certainly Paul is not prohibiting all contact or association with unbelievers. I mean, we'd have to go out of the world. Uh, to do that, right? I mean, as believers, we're to be light and salt to the world. We're, we're to share the gospel with, with those who don't know Christ. That's why we've been left here. To live for Him. To share the gospel with those who are perishing. But we're not supposed to be in relationships with unbelievers that might pull us away from God and into their immoral practices and lifestyle. And we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're, we're to seek to reach the world without being contaminated by it. So Paul says, look, don't become partners with them. Don't get sucked into that. Don't, don't participate with the world and its immorality. And we cannot be partners with unbelievers in their sin. Because if we should fall into a life of immorality and continue that way, we'd be giving clear evidence that we are idolaters, not worshipers of God, sons of disobedience instead of obedient, and so the heirs, not of heaven, but of hell. And so God, through Paul, gives, gives us a couple of sober warnings here. And, and we should take it seriously. We should take it seriously. I mean, these, these things aren't even preached in so many places today. That's one beauty of going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is you take it all. The encouraging, comforting parts with the severe warnings and the rebukes. And in teaching the Word of God, there's always, you know, um, we'd be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort. There's rebuke, there's, there's exhortation, uh, there's admonishing, there's warning. All of that is part of being faithful to teach the Word of God. And if you came here this morning and I should have skipped over these verses and went to something else, you should have got up and walked out and left. Because no pastor worth his salt will skip around and not teach everything the Word of God says, even when it's uncomfortable, and even when the bulk of people today don't like it. So we need to take these warnings seriously. And then when we read these awful warnings against sexual immorality, we, we need to put ourselves in the place of the Ephesians. 
I mean, they were surrounded by sexual temptations that had captured them in the past and, and continued to tempt them in the present. I mean, the, the temple of Artemis there, I mean, part of the, the worship were, were temple priestesses or prostitutes. That, that was part of the worship. It was one of the most immoral places you can imagine. And they were continually tempted by this. And without question, there were those in the churches who were continuing to struggle with these sins, or else uh, there'd be no reason for Paul to even address the issue. But how were the Ephesians supposed to deal with these warnings? I mean, these are severe warnings from Paul. So how are they supposed to deal with these warnings? How are we supposed to deal with these warnings? We're, We're to receive them with love. were to receive them with love because they were expressed with love, care, and great concern. I mean, why does God warn us? You know, what, 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 what motivates God uh, to issue his warnings? Well, what motivates you to, to warn your, your, your child or uh, your loved one of impending doom, something that could take their very life? What motivates you to warn them and do whatever you have to do to get them out of harm's way? What motivates you? Love. You love them. You're not willing to stand by and and, and see them walk into harm's way. So what motivates God to issue his warnings? Love. Love. I mean, Paul, uh, God through Paul is warning his children. He is warning us. Warning those he loves, those who are dear to him. He's warning us of danger. And and this in in itself is a sign of his great love. Because if he didn't love, he wouldn't warn. And so someone who thinks they're doing their congregation a favor by not preaching these warnings doesn't love their congregation at all. If God didn't love us, he wouldn't warn us. And that's a sign of his great love for us. You see, loved ones, we have to understand that one aspect of the grace of God is his faithfulness to warn us of the consequences of sin because there are consequences. As one man said, were he only a God of retribution, then he would relish the harm that comes to those who cross him. But here he speaks to those already bought by the blood of his son and and who yet trample his blood underfoot by their sin, warning them to flee from the consequences of their sin. The motive for such a warning to such people as these can only be love. And God's love is also seen in the extent of his warning. And the warning never extends to rejection. Look at the final words of the passage. Paul warns the Ephesians that God's wrath comes upon idolaters, the sons of disobedience. And what does he say there in verse 7? Therefore, do not be partners with them. With them. Note the fact that Paul does not say, therefore, disinheritance and eternal wrath will come upon you. No, he clearly warns that idolaters and sons of disobedience will experience wrath. And so he warns the believers to stay away from them, not not to partner with them in their sinful practices. You 
And even though the Ephesians surely had sin in their lives, as we do, the Apostle Paul doesn't say, you're one of them. Why? Because they're saints. They're the children of God. And these words echo those from John's epistle. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And in a similar way, Paul speaks here to the Ephesians as if to say, look, behold what manner the love the Father has lavished upon you, that you should be God's children, not just His children, His dearly beloved children, His saints, His, His holy ones. That's what you are. He's already told the Ephesians that they are a, a holy temple of God, and here in 5 that they're His dearly loved children and, and saints, His holy ones, and, and so they, they should live that way. That's the way they need to live. And out of his great love, he warns us of the danger of these sins. And so what does a Christian do when tempted by sexual sin? Well, the Bible gives one clear, (laughs) very clear, simple, and consistent answer. Flee. Run. Get out of there. And this is what Joseph did when when Potiphar's wife sexually lured him. And let me just say something about that. Joseph was probably around 30 years old, 28 to 30 years old, right in there, give or take a few years. So a young man in the prime of his life, working in the house every day with Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar being the political position that he was in, men like that married beautiful women. And so Potiphar's wife, no doubt, was an extremely beautiful woman. Joseph's working in the house every day, and she's around. And she keeps telling him, come and lie with me. In other words, come to bed with me. Until once she actually grabbed him by his clothes, and you know the story, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul said, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14 elaborates. He says, flee from idolatry. Writing to the young pastor Timothy, Paul said, flee these things. Again, in 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul wrote, so flee youthful passions. And it's in the same spirit that he commands us here in verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. This means that as Christians, we overcome sexual temptation first, by avoiding it. Just getting out of there. If it means you literally have to run. And when it comes to fleeing and avoiding sexual sin, the Bible is much more realistic than many of us are. Because you see, the Bible assumes that if we expose ourselves to sexual temptation, that it's likely to be too strong for us to resist. So don't put yourself in a compromising situation. Because when you do, it's because you've already decided to toy with the temptation. And so it's no surprise that those situations uh, very frequently result in sin. Because in reality, the choice was already made when you accepted the temptation. The biblical way to overcome sexual temptation is to flee. Just run for your life. And this goes for both single Christians and married Christians. The biblical way to overcome sexual temptation 
is to flee. And let me just issue a warning. Most uh, cases of adultery occur in the workplace with someone who is a co-worker and or a friend. So you need to be very careful in the workplace. You need to guard yourself, guard your heart. Don't fall prey uh, to someone who may be out to seduce you. You need to be on guard. Flee. Don't hang around. And if you have to, quit your job. This is that serious. And again, as we said last week, and I want to repeat it again, you know, somebody's thinking, well, what about the immorality of my past life before I was a Christian? Where does that leave me? If you're a born-again child of God, uh, when you came to faith in Christ, all your sins, all your sexual sins were paid for. And you were washed and cleansed. All your sins forgiven. But maybe you're a believer here this morning and you've fallen into sexual sin. You might be in the grip of it right now. What do you do? Go to the cross, right? Take your sin, take it to the cross. Take all your guilt and shame and sin to the Lord Jesus Christ who died to take that all away, who died to wash and cleanse you. And then as one man said, enter through Jesus into a renewed relationship with your holy and loving Heavenly Father. But you must repent in practical and concrete ways. Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, I forgive you, now go and sin no more. Devote yourself to Him, walk with Him, fill your mind with His Word, and let prayer flow freely from your heart and flee sexual temptations. So we confess our sin to God, we seek His forgiveness, but we have to be honest about our temptations. We have to act with integrity, obeying Paul's teaching by proactively guarding ourselves and our relationships from sexual sin, and then knowing that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sins, including sexual sin that we need to have peace in our hearts and, and let the power of the Holy Spirit lead us in a new and a holy life as we walk with Jesus in a true and, and obedient faith. You know, our society has taught us that immorality is making love. Well, the Bible exposes this as a flat-out lie. Immorality is never the expression of love. It is only the expression of lust. Biblical love is, def is defined in terms of self-giving sacrifice. And it's to imitate the love with which the Lord Jesus Christ loved us and demonstrated, in his and demonstrated it in His sacrifice for sinners at the cross. And so as we leave this text of Scripture this morning, I hope and pray that we do so with a clearer grasp of what Christian love is all about. 
It's not about self-centered, self-indulgence, and self-gratification. But rather, it's about Christ-like, self-giving, self-sacrifice, and the glory of God. So may God make the goal of this instruction love from a pure heart to His glory and for our good. Amen. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website, at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you It's your love that makes me see